if you look at any 10-year period uh, in most economies developed and developing, something like 10% of the occupations are ones that didn't exist in the previous 10-year period. Uh, so, for example, if you had looked in the United States or any advanced economy in 1995, the occupation category web designer didn't exist, uh, but now it does. Welcome to the Future of Work, the Investic Focus Radio podcast. Everyone who's going to be working with people in the future needs to hear. I'm Ingrid Booth from the Investec Digital Content Team, and that was James Monika you heard there, Chairman and Director of the McKinsey Global Institute in San Francisco, which leads research on global economic and technology trends. So tech replacing jobs is nothing new, and the controversy surrounding it is nothing new, but historically we've seen technologies creating at least as much work as they displace. Given the pervasive power of AI and machine learning, and the disruptive nature of these technologies, does it make the current wave of job displacement something fundamentally different? Investec had the opportunity to interview Mr. Manika, and we asked him whether we are going to see displaced jobs being offset by new opportunities, or if we are heading towards an era in which the vast majority of workers are unemployable. There's several pieces to that. Let me tackle each piece uh, that you asked. I think one of the questions is around, you know, is this time different? And the answer is actually yes and no. It depends what you're asking. So if you're asking, this time are we automating something different than the kinds of things we automated before, then the answer is yes. Because if you think about previous waves of automation, what we were mostly doing is adding muscle, if you like, uh, to physical activities. Where, you know, we, we, before you used to have to dig something by hand, now you, you know, use a power machine to do that. Now what we're doing is also start, in addition to automating those kinds of things, we're now also automating what feel like cognitive tasks, what feel like thinking tasks, what we used to call knowledge work. Uh, we're starting to do things that we couldn't even write the routine for or the recipe for it. Uh, we're now doing things that go beyond even human capabilities, uh, interpreting images, understanding images. So in terms of the kinds of things we're automating, they are a little bit different. But if you look at the effects around does this destroy jobs? Do we end up with a net negative or net positive? Uh, there's no evidence of that, actually. In fact, the, all the evidence suggests that uh, you know, the technologies will have and is having the same effect it's always had, which is it does, uh, you know, some occupations decline, but many others actually grow and rise. And quite often, many that grow and rise are ones we could never imagine. Uh, so one of the factors, for example, that we found is that if you look at any 10-year period uh, in most economies developed and developing, something like 10% of the occupations are ones that didn't exist in the previous 10-year period. Uh, so, for example, if you had looked in the United States or any advanced economy in 1995, the occupation category web designer didn't exist, uh, but now it does. So, technology, in addition to growing jobs through productivity growth, which drives uh, economic growth, which drives job growth, it also creates these new jobs that didn't exist before and these new sectors that didn't exist before. Uh, look at what's happened with um, home delivery uh, through e-commerce and uh, the scale of it now is far larger uh, than we have imagined home delivery of parcels and, and things to be what it is. I want to bring in Ramez Nam here from Singularity University where he leads the Energy and Environmental Systems Faculty. 
He recently spoke about exponential innovation at the Singularity U South Africa Summit in Johannesburg, where we recorded this podcast. Ramez, I think in a nutshell what you're basically saying is that the future is happening faster than we realize. What I mean is that in every industry, you see disruptive companies coming in. If you look at the, the list of unicorns around the world, billion-dollar startups, there's more and more every year, and they're in every industry. They're in healthcare, they're in transportation, they're in manufacturing, they're in media, they're in communications, any industry you can name. They're in food, they're in travel, and they're all mostly digital companies that are revolutionizing those industries. So you might think that in your industry you're safe, that there's no way that digital technology or exponential technology is going to disrupt you, but I'll tell you people in uh, food thought that. People in taxis thought there's no way they would be disrupted by cell phones, but of course they have been. So you might be too. You also spoke about exponential innovation as being democratizing. What do you mean by that? And what is the impact of that on how we work? As technology gets cheaper, it gets accessible to more and more and more people. So I'll give you an example of that. The cell phone is really the the best example. Today, more than 80%, almost 90% of people in Sub-Saharan Africa have a mobile phone. And uh, four years ago, 2014, uh, only about 15% of Africa had a smartphone. Today, more than a third of Africa has a smartphone. It's doubled in four years. And that smartphone has more capabilities than Ronald Reagan had in his entire communication staff when he was president in 1980. So that's democratization. What used to be billions of dollars worth of value, literally something that the president of the US could not have, now billions of people have for a few dollars. I think many South Africans would take issue with for a few dollars, but I take your point. What do you think is the impact of that? I am most excited about the way that digital tech is getting in the hands of billions of people. I'm excited about these devices that are just getting cheaper and cheaper and more powerful and connect to services in the cloud. You know, MIT is promising to put 100% of its curriculum online for free, and soon, Almost every adult on planet Earth will have a supercomputer in their pocket that can connect them to that content, can translate it in real time into their language, maybe with an AI tutor that knows what they're getting right, what they're getting wrong, and can tune what lesson they look at next. That, to me, affects everything. It affects corruption and democracy, it affects education, it affects productivity and economic growth, and it is the biggest uplifter of billions of lives that we've ever seen on planet Earth. Ramez, you know, that democratization ties into something else I've heard you talk about, and that's how disruptive innovation is coming from the bottom up and not the top down. I think you were speaking specifically about corporate structure and how that is what will help companies become more innovative. That's right. Innovation really happens mostly from the bottoms up. We have this notion that the CEO or the strategy department will determine what the next thing to do is and it'll trickle down. But if that's the case, then what are the brains of all these people you've hired doing? If you want to maximize their brain power, you get them to have some autonomy, to take the initiative, to try new things without having to ask for permission. I'll give you an example, Gmail. Many people uh, who are listening probably use Gmail. Gmail happened because a Google engineer looked at the search index and said, I could make a pretty cool email index using this. I'm going to try it. And when you empower employees throughout your organization or citizens throughout your country to try things, take risks, you get an explosion of new ideas and new innovations. 
Coming from the corporate world, that's quite a radical rethink on how a lot of big corporates specifically are set up. I mean, where do they even start? The way to start with uh, bottoms-up methods isn't in the core of your business usually. It's usually at the edge. If you have some new initiative that you think might be the biggest growth area, but you don't really have a team there yet, you can establish a new culture, a different way of working from the very beginning and have that maybe grow to be the new center of your business. That avoids the issue that, that in the core of your business, there will be an immune response. People will resist change. So, so go up on the edge and try your experiments there. Mark Kahn is Investec's Global Head of Human Resources and Organizational Development. Mark, what practical steps can companies take to get that bottom-up innovation going? So at the risk of taking on a very great uh, man, I'm, I'm not in agreement with that um, way of seeing that, things around innovation. Um, let's take the term bottom-up. Bottom-up is just an inverted hierarchy. It's just another kind of hierarchy. What we do, you know, if you look at a living system, a living system is rhizomatic. What that means is like a rhizome, which is a sort of a, a, a root a, a vegetable of sorts. And it doesn't have an up or a down, a left and a right. It's like your brain, which is the bottom and which is the top of your brain. Do you know what I mean? It, it's holistic. It's, it's multidimensional. Um, and this is what a human environment looks like. A human environment, you know, innovation happens everywhere. It happens at the top, it happens at the bottom, in the middle, in the you don't know where it's going to happen. What you want to look at is you want to create a total and holistic environmental shift for the entire organization that innovation is the primary task of the normal course of work on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and that, that's the real challenge. And how do you do that? You don't do that by stripping out innovation and putting it in a, a separate place, because that's going to do the opposite, because that means then the innovation doesn't happen in the main. And it deauthorizes um, the ability to innovate if you aren't in that box. And anyone who wants to be innovated and try and get a job to go in the box there, on the side. And the people in the box and be like, oh, we have to be innovative, we have to be innovative. It doesn't work. So innovation is not an, intent, an intended task. Innovation is the result of the natural expression of thinking and adaptation in the normal course of, of work. So um, I'm against innovation hubs. Not because I'm against innovation, but because I'm in favor of innovation and I don't want you to strip it out of the very fabric of the organization itself. Mark, that's very interesting because obviously there's a huge amount of change management that would need to go into that because people are going to resist change. How do you create that innovative environment and give people the freedom to fail and try again? So instead what you do is you make the whole thing an innovation hub, which means you have different rules. Rule number one for future workplaces, failure is an option. So you need to create an environment that tolerates risk more, not unlike a startup, okay, and has in place mechanisms to manage failure so that and encourage experimentation and play to achieve failure points for learning iterations and that you manage the risk by encouraging failure where you don't bet the whole farm the second thing is hierarchy hierarchy is death to innovation because it means well i'm you know supreme galactic commander level one and you are assistant orange peeler number two so you don't get to think and i get to think and you listen to me because i'm clever you know, that type of, obviously I'm, I'm being uh, facetious, but I think not that far from the truth in a lot of companies still today. But how can a big corporate turn this massive ship around? What are the practical steps that a business can take to create this agile culture and get their employees and the company future fit? The truth is it's much harder to change an existing uh, big ship 
than it is to start a new one. Now, so problem A. Um, problem B is that when you are large uh, and complex, there are a set of uh, dynamics which keep the system in a state of what's called homeostasis or balance. And when you want to create agility, you need that balance to be upset. And many stakeholders in the environment become anxious that their patch, territory, job, whatever it is, will be lost in the new arrangement that is you know, on the table imminently. And so what they do is, in order to survive, they prevent adaptability because it, at a small level they will stay alive longer but of course the whole ship is going to get taken out in the long game whereas a small company everyone's in the same little boat and off they go therefore companies need to rethink being big ships and rather think of themselves as a fleet of speedboats and start to reorganize themselves as a fleet of speedboats that are loosely coordinated with a very uh, lean integrating methodology and that there's quite a lot of flexibility for the speedboats to move into different spaces and places and people can jump from one boat across into another if they come close to each other. Um, and you can shut down a little speedboat and get another one without having systemic consequences into the organisation. Actually, Mark, that brings us to another buzzword that everyone is talking about now in terms of the future of work, the so-called gig economy where everyone's got a side hustle, a lot of people are opting out of the permanent workforce to work in the freelance or short-term contract space. And some people even have permanent jobs and they've got another business on the side or another interest on the side, especially maybe younger employees. How does a company deal with that? Is the gig economy a threat to corporates? I do think it's a very important consideration. I think it can be a threat, but it can also be an opportunity. It depends how corporations look at it. So if you look at some of the predictions, in the next 20 years the, in the US, um, it's predicted that about 40 to 45% of the workforce of the United States will be in the gig. They'll, they'll be just doing gigs everywhere, okay? And for those listeners that don't know, a gig economy is not referring to gig like as in megabyte and gig. It refers to gig like a music gig, like oh, I've got this thing that I'm in, I'm going to go do this bit of work and that bit of work. I've got a gig to go and play music here or play there. So in this case, let's say, you know, you're in marketing or you're in a deal maker. You're going to say, well, I've got a gig doing a deal or doing a project in this company and then I'm doing one for myself over here. And then this other company, I'm going to go and do something over there. Those are your gigs. OK, so um, it is amazing how many people think it refers to megabyte and gigabyte. Out of interest. I had to Google it myself when I first heard it. What does this mean for the workforce of the future? People are going to be effectively independent sole proprietors selling their labor. So what is what does you know loyalty to a company mean in the future? How do you employ people in the gig economy? You know, uh, if they're not going to be in the long term with you, what happens to institutional memory? Yeah. Okay. What about competitive issues and conflicts of interest between people working across and between companies? So what we are seeing is we are seeing in some way, and I'm going to make a big statement here, we are seeing a revolution of the boundary system of what a company is and what a company is not. And let me make the link for you. So what is a company? A company, yes, you can say, is actually a fantasy in a set of documents. But when, where is it not a fantasy? The people working there. What constitutes the company? So Investec's got approximately 10,000 people in 42 offices around the world. 
It's got these buildings, but many of the time, by the way, these buildings are rented, not all of them. So the company is real by virtue of those that are employed in it and some of the assets in it, okay? Now, if we go to the, on the people side, are you, is it, what if all the people employed in the company are employed in the gig, as gigs? Where is the company? Where is the culture of the company? Where does the company begin and end? What about the notion of a team? What happens to a team? If your team has got people doing various gigs. People coming in and out, freelancers. Yeah, people coming in and out, freelancers. What does that mean for what that organization means? So if we start to, as I said much earlier, if we look at what is organization, you can see when you look at the gig, the gig economy of the future, the metaphors don't exist. We, don't, we haven't even invented the taxonomy to describe what this thing is that we're going to have. So, Mark, it's really more about the skills that people have and how transferable they are. Exactly. And so we, st- we stop thinking about you as a, like you're a job. Mm-hmm. And we start thinking about capability and capability becomes detached from an individual and it becomes a commodity that's moving around in a free-flowing environment and people cluster together in sensible ways and then uncluster and reconnect in various gigs to deliver a very agile value chain which is loosely coordinated by a leadership function which tries to coordinate it without too much management control but enough to manage the risk in a very, very fluid environment. That's the future world. So in this complex world of the gig economy that you've just described, how do companies retain loyalty? And is it even a prerequisite? Should we be worried about loyalty? I think we should be worried about loyalty, but here's a guess, and I'm offering a guess here because I actually think we don't know, but here's a guess. In the future, when we think about organizational culture and company culture and the loyalty that that could breed or would breed, I don't think that's going to be that different. The difference will be is that instead of competing, by creating a compelling environment to attract employees. You are competing to create a compelling environment to attract gigs. So people want to say, hey, I want to come and, can I get some gig work at Investec? Have you got some gig work there? Introduce me. I like, I don't want to be uh, doing more stuff at this company X or company Y. I'm really not crazy about doing that work. I'd much rather come and do some stuff at Investec because they've got like an amazing environment that I want to kind of connect into. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yes, so it's, it's kind of like a networking opportunity. So that really changes the entire way that people have to think about and plan for their careers. Instead of thinking about a career, in a particular craft that you have for 30 years, you need to think about being multi-skilled, independent, and massively flexible in as many different working environments as possible. So you think about yourself on a horizontal axis of capabilities rather than a vertical axis of specialization. Now you need some specialization because the specialization will exist, but the idea of being multi-skilled and working in multi-environments and being independently able to do that work will be the differentiator for those who are more successful in the future. And you can see that's an easy match to this idea. So you almost see yourself as a mini little company in who you are, offering a range of capabilities, almost like products and services, okay? And obviously they're within, I mean, they're not totally general in every single possible industry. You want to prescribe them within a kind of complementary set of capabilities. Um, And then you want to see how much different type of work you can do within that range and get like, you know, exposure to, to very diverse 
challenges. And those people that have a picture like that will be very attractive for gig work, as you can see. Um, and so they, and the more gig work they get, the more attractive they're going to be. So people need to understand they're going to relearn new skills as the old ones become defunct, but they also need to have a wide range of applications of those skills, and they also need a wide range of skills for different applications. So it sounds like the gig economy really ticks two boxes. That is attracting millennials who want to pursue their passions and also really answering the question of flexibility that everyone's asking for. Is that how companies could actually offer that? I think so, yes. I mean, the, the, the big companies of the future will be very loosely defined, okay. a simple way of putting it. And the great workers of the future will operate well in loosely defined multi sort of in loosely defined multi-skill required environments. Uh, In in putting it in very simple terms, we need to get really relaxed about things. (laughs) Okay, because if you're not, the hard lines we make, the world's going to break them. Um, We are, you know, and we are very not relaxed Mm -hmm. in the corporate world. We're the exact opposite of relaxed. We are machine-like. And so those companies that can't relax and loosen their boundaries and become more agile and adaptable are going to get knocked out very, very suddenly. And it's going to be make more, more even more volatility. And it's a massive challenge like everything you've described because it has to be done in a relatively short time span because this exponential technology is coming. It's here and we don't have a lot of time to react. Well, if you go with uh, some of these futurists, what they say is actually we already are here. The world has changed. It really already is like this. We just haven't woken up to it. Making that paradigm shift in the way we think about jobs and careers will mean a concomitant shift in how we educate future workers. At the recent Singularity U South Africa Summit, we spoke to Teddy Bletcher, a truly inspirational man who's tackling the problem of future-proofing our country's education system. I'm the CEO of the Marish Institute and I chair for the South African government. Uh, Actually quite a groundbreaking (coughs) initiative to transform the South African education system over the next 12 years to really bring it into the 21st century. Having listened to all that's been said so far about the future of work, do you think we're ready? To be honest, I would say not really. And, and, and it's like everything else. You've got your front movers, you've got your elite, you've got the people like the haves. They, are, they understand this future. They're on the web. They're reading about everything, you know, and so on. And then you've got millions and millions and millions of people who this, rea- it's just not even reality. It's just, you know, they're worried about basic needs, survival, you know, just cutting it through life, basically. And, and, and then you've just got billions and billions of people who, who are yeah, truly being left behind. Nathaniel Calhoun yesterday talk about, spoke about breaking technology's promise. And, and I think that that's happening. Technology is this unbelievably, unbelievable tool, but for most people, they're not really accessing it. Aside from like a phone, and they're just consumers. They're not, they're not masters. They're not creating anything. They're just on Facebook. They're just using other people's stuff, but they're not creating anything. But why is education so inefficient? Look, this education system, you know, really from the 19th century, even before then, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't designed well then, and for the 21st century, I mean, it's just a complete waste of time. And we have to change it. I'm, I'm chairing this initiative. And we're trying to be very practical, very realistic. There's no way we can just destroy the school system because you've got nearly 14 million kids in the system. And it's like you've got to turn a huge ship around. It's like, you know, it's a monolith. 
And so we've got to be very strategic, you know, a lot of design thinking and how we change this create almost like a brain, like a, like a, like a nerve center at the center of this massive machine that we call the education system. But just that helps to start steering the ship so that kids can actually start to learn the skills that you need now, right now, to hold down a job like complex problem solving and creativity and emotional intelligence, empathy, thinking skills, um, etc. Well, we've already covered how all of you think work will be in the future. Some, Mark, would say how work already is, that the future is already here. But let's hear now from someone who's already practically been working this way in her career. Stacey Ferreira, the founder and CEO of Forge Technologies, at the age of 25, has already had five successful career changes in her life. So my name is Stacey Ferreira. I have been a serial entrepreneur for the past few years. Um, in short, I started my first company when I was 18 years old called My Social Cloud, which was an internet security company. Built that company with my brother Scott and another co-founder over the course of a few years before selling it to Reputation.com that's based in San Francisco. After selling the company to Reputation, I went on to publish my first book called Two Billion Under 20 that I co-authored with a friend named Jared Kleinert. And after publishing that book, decided to go for round two in the startup game and started my next company, Forge. So Stacy, from your lived experience of a career that has encompassed many different angles thus far, how do we prepare for working in this new way that we described here today? So if we don't know what the future jobs are, then the best way to prepare for that is really to learn how to learn. Um, we know that as technology is changing, we're going to have to learn more things throughout the course of our career over time. So kind of this notion of going to college, getting a four-year degree, and then being done with learning, I think is, is way of the past, right? We need to think about how do we constantly kind of update the information that we're taking in and continue to learn um, about new things so that 20 years from now, um, we're not saying, oh, I don't know anything about this new technology that exists. We've actually kind of kept up with it, um, even if lightly just reading the news or getting content from conferences or whatever it may be to learn about what that future might look like to just keep our finger on the pulse. And that's exactly what podcasts like this are all about. Thank you for listening. The future of work is a fascinating topic, so we will continue the conversation soon. And I hope you will join us again next time on Investic Focus Radio. Be sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.